0: Today's scripture reading will come from Acts 2:14 through 33. "When you've gotten there, please stand for the reading of God's word, Acts 2:14 through33. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, "Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words." nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we are all are witness. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So last week uh, in our time together, I started with a visual picture for you, and that visual picture was one of a buffet where we approach Acts chapter 2 a little bit like we, we know that we can't get everything out of Acts chapter 2 that's in Acts chapter 2, so we have to pass by some of it, and take on others. And so last week, there's probably plenty of things that I didn't get to that you probably wanted me to address, and if you have questions about any of those things, I'm happy to answer them in uh, some downtime. But today, it's gonna be more of the same. We're gonna be looking at certain parts of the text, just because there's so much here, and probably skipping over other parts of the text that you would really maybe like me to deal with. And I'm gonna try to, as my, as my uh, selection criteria, pick the main points of the text, not things that we ask of the text, but things that the text is proving to us today uh, in the reading of Peter, in in his preaching. And uh, you'll notice that we, in the reading, started back in verse 14. That's not because I'm going to be going back over from verse 14 onward, but because some of the verse 14 section is relevant for uh, the section we're looking at today, really from verse 22 and on. And that's because this is one sermon that we are artificially dividing into multiple weeks. It's one good sermon, uh, but one sermon that's got so much packed into it that for us to do it justice, we have to unfortunately split it apart. So as just a brief recap, what has happened so far is the Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples, spoke about the significance of that last week. And what Peter's doing in the sermon is defending that what is happening in the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples and them speaking in tongues. What's happening there is not chaotic noise, and it's not drunkenness, but rather it's a fulfillment of what was expected by God's people and by God's Messiah in the last days. And so he quotes first from this prophecy in Joel uh, chapter 2. And this Joel text is uh, Joel the prophet looking forward to a day when God would renew his people, would restore them, And he foresees this time when everyone, from the least of them to the greatest, will have the Spirit of God upon them, anointing them for the task of ministry, to prophesy, to share the revelation of God, to go forward and to be witnesses. And so the disciples are saying, what Joel predicted is here happening in our midst, among us right now, that's what you've seen. And I spoke about, at least in this verse, we have to see that the, the last days have started with Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension. And that has kind of brought in this era of time, which the Old Testament refers to as the last days. It's this time of restoration. It's a time of flourishing for the people of God. And it's a time where the obedience of the nations is brought in, the Gentiles are brought in, by the movement of the Spirit of God beyond just the Jewish people and into also the Gentile nations as well. So you have a conversion of Jewish people that is anticipated, a remnant of Israel being restored, and also you have an anticipation that others will be brought in, as is common in Isaiah and Jeremiah and other Old Testament texts that speak about the Gentiles being included in God's plan of salvation for the Israelites. And so that's uh, at least part of what's going on in those first couple of verses. I'm flying by it right now because that's all just recap from last week. But I'd like to pick up in verse 21 of that Old Testament quotation where you have judgment and restoration being announced. And in verse 21, Peter says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I didn't talk about what exactly is happening here. But in our culture, here is an unpopular message that humanity must, in fact, be saved. What Peter is saying And what Peter doesn't have to prove to his audience, but that we need to prove to almost anyone in the world today, is that humanity is in need of saving. Humanity is not perfect. God is not pleased with how we have done. He's not pleased with our imperfect obedience. And so we must be saved. Now, this is something that Joel anticipates, that there's this event in which when you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And R.C. Sproul wrote a book some years ago titled, Saved From What? I think that's a question we have to ask when we look at this text. What are we saved from? If the gospel message is that Christ was crucified, died, and resurrected so that we can be saved, what is it that we are being saved from that required the death of a perfect man and his resurrection? What, what is it that is so bad that we need to be saved? Now, let me dispel a couple of myths. We, we do not need to be saved from our own mental prison and then freed to be our true selves. Common myth today. That salvation, the kind of salvation that the gurus and the spiritual and, and the religious folks offer to the world, is that we are saved by loosing the, trap, the entrapments of culture, the entrapments of our own shame and guilt, and we are released from that, saved from that, and freed to be our true selves. Nothing could be further from the text of Scripture. The text of Scripture does not tell us that we are saved from our own mental prison. The text of Scripture teaches that we are saved from an objective reality, namely that we are sinners who have fallen short of God's holy standard. And in Peter's context, he doesn't have to explain this to other Jewish people, because they know that there's this holy God who has reached out to them to redeem them as a people. He calls them to worship him alone and to be faithful to him alone. He gives them all these blessings, and they apostatize, they leave him, they go and worship other gods, ultimately leading to their exile from the land. And it's at that time that Joel prophesies and says, in the future, there will be this restoration where the criteria to be saved is to call upon the name of the Lord. That will save you. And that future restoration is also a future judgment. Both of those things happen in this last day's era. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news, but it's assuming that there will be some who will not be saved and there's something coming which they need to be saved from. This is what the Christian church has taught historically, is the wrath of God poured out against humanity, culminating in what is the unpopular doctrine of hell. That there is a time in the future at the last judgment, when those who have not been in Christ, who have rejected his kingdom and his reign, and who have chosen to stand upon their own shoulders and their own status, will go to an eternity in hell for suffering and for punishment. That's what we are saved from, when we call upon the name of the Lord. And the reason we're saved from that is not because we have become righteous, more righteous than those who are in hell, but because Christ Jesus is righteous, perfectly so, and he has then turned around to offer that salvation to anyone who would believe. That's John 3.16, one, one of the best verses to memorize for a young Christian. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what God offers to the people. And there are still some, as the scripture teaches, reject that offer of salvation and will therefore suffer for it in eternity, in hell. That is what we are being saved from. Now, it's, what's striking in this text, and what, what we have to remember, is that Peter is speaking to pious Jews. This is kind of the context of Pentecost. Remember, the people who are celebrating Pentecost are Jews who are observing the Jewish calendar, and so they're coming in at the Feast of Pentecost to celebrate God's liturgical calendar for the year, And so when he he preaches this message, in a moment, he's gonna turn and say to the crowd, and you must believe as well. And that's quite striking because his audience is seemingly a bunch of people who would be in the salvific plan of God. They would be in the kingdom. And he turns around and preaches that message to them. That probably shouldn't shock us too much because we know that it's possible today even to be in church, to attend church, to be a member of a church, to be a good Christian, and to still not be dependent on the Lord for salvation. And so it is the case that preachers today, even in churches, will preach a message of salvation and redemption and repentance and confession and reliance on Jesus Christ every single Sunday to their people. So what, what we do here. We, we tell you you need to turn from your sins and be saved depending on nothing else but Christ Jesus. And that's because even those who are the most pious religious observers can have a tendency to slip in and out of this uh, conviction of their own sinfulness and therefore begin to rely upon their themselves as sufficient for salvation. Something we need to be reminded of. And it's also possible for you to have grown up in church your whole life and to never have depended upon Christ for salvation. The whole time may be coming upon the conviction of sin but never turning to Christ for salvation. And there's a difference between feeling guilty about sin and turning in dependence on Christ for repentance and for forgiveness of that sin. Guilt sometimes can be a passing thing where we sin, we feel guilty, we feel bad, and then after some time we don't feel so bad anymore and we think, because the guilt has passed, therefore the condemnation has passed. That's not at all true. The, the condemnation remains even if our consciences aren't guilty because sin is an objective reality against the God of the universe. So here Peter's talking about being saved from the wrath of God which is to come, and he says to his audience, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So here here Peter has got one long thought that is kind of trying to summarize and explain how the Holy Spirit has come and how redemption is now being offered. And so it's not just calling upon the name of the Lord, which now saves, but in the New Testament, it's calling upon the name of Christ, which now saves, Christ Jesus, who is the offered salvation from God. Now this is an important note, because in the Old Testament, the people know that God will redeem them, that in the future he will provide a means of salvation, but they're not exactly sure what that means of salvation will be or who he will be called or what his name will be. For example, Jesus as the personal name of the second person of the Trinity when he takes on flesh is not something that necessarily David would have known that my Messiah in the future will be named Jesus of Nazareth. But what David relies on and what the Old Testament saints rely on is a future redemption coming from God on which they are dependent for salvation. Now, we do not have that excuse anymore to say that, oh, well, we're just trusting on God general for salvation, no, we, we trust on Christ in particular for salvation, because he is the means by which God has said, here is the salvation that is now offered. We have a fuller revelation of God's plan, and also a more precise responsibility to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So that when we, so when we say we call upon the name of the Lord, we're calling upon the name of Christ to be our Savior, Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, as he says in verse 22, Peter wants to make it plain, uh, to an audience of faithful Jews, we all believe that God will save, right? Here's how God has saved, through this Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom you crucified. It's kind of a striking point, saying, well, I'm not just saying Joel said God will save, I'm saying that God is working his salvation out through the person who you crucified not, not too long ago. It's fresh in everyone's mind. And how do we know that Jesus was the Messiah? How do we know that Jesus was God? Because God attested to him that he was God, or I should say more precisely, God attested about him to the rest of the watching world by signs and wonders that he did. So Jesus goes around saying, as, as we see in Luke, I forgive you of your sins. Now only God can forgive someone of sins, but then Jesus says, and here's how you know that I have that power. I will cause this person who's lame and paralyzed to get up and walk. I will cause this leper's hand to be healed. So he says these crazy things like, I can forgive sins. And then he verifies that that's not just a, an outlandish statement. He then verifies it by uh, undisputed sign. Now that's important because if you, if you walk around any city, any downtown for long enough, you're going to find someone who's just a little bit strange and who will say things like, I am God or I can save or I am the Savior, and those people say things like that, make claims like that, there's there's no evidence to the fact that they actually can do those things. There's no mighty works, there's no sign, there's no attestation that that claim is true. In Jesus' case, it is true. Jesus makes these claims about himself, and then goes and does things which show that it is God who is behind him and verifying his ministry. This is the the burden that Nicodemus has. Uh, Nicodemus goes to Jesus by night and says, we know that no one can do the works that you do unless they are sent from God. And Nicodemus wrestles with that in contrast to the fact that what Jesus is saying is contrary to the religious indoctrination that Nicodemus has undergone. He's saying, I know that only God can do the works that you do. I know that only someone sent by God can do these works. And yet, what you're saying is very different than what the religious leaders are saying. And Nicodemus wrestles with this. And that's the difficulty of Jesus, is that he makes claims about himself, but he also makes them in in a verifiable way, with signs and with wonders. And ultimately, the the chief sign, as Peter is about to show us, is that after they crucified him for charges of blasphemy, he was resurrected from the dead, proving himself to be innocent of those charges. Quite a striking thing. But uh, at this point, we need to just pull over and pause and say, again, in our own culture, in our own context, what Jesus does and what the New Testament Gospels tell us about Jesus is that the miracles that he performs are central to who he is and what he did. You cannot take a scissor or or a whiteout to your Bible and say, here's where Jesus taught good moral things. And here in these other places is a fabrication or a a legendary kind of story about him that was later added on. The feeding of the 5,000 is just as central to the character of Jesus, as is his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Because the miraculous signs and wonders prove his teaching to be true. You cannot cut out the miracles and, and have any shambles of a savior left. Because Jesus did not come to teach us moral perfection. He did not come to teach us a better way to live. In part, yes, he came to teach us a better way to get along with one another through his enabling spirit and by his enabling grace, because he's God after all. But we can't do away with the miraculous and have Jesus left. The text does not allow for that. That's Peter's point, by the way. Two people who could have probably been present when Jesus did these miracles, he says, this Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to, to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Meaning those miracles are proof that this Jesus was in fact the one sent from God. And he even follows it up by saying, as you yourselves know. It it, it cannot get more plain than that. You know it, it was attested to you, it was done in your midst. As Paul will later say in the book of Acts uh, to one one of the kings he's before, this was not done in a corner. What I'm telling you about now was done for everyone to see, for anyone to critique. This is, not, this is not someone went off in a cave somewhere, had a private revelation, and then came out saying they speak now on behalf of God. Contra many other major religions today. Jesus did this in the public sight for anyone to see and to challenge. And then, verse 23, quite a shocking claim. Here is this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge in God, And you, he's talking now to his audience, you, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And here is something strange also that Peter's insisting on, is that when Jesus was crucified, it was not not against the will of God that the crucifixion would take place. Now, in some sense, we should say that crucifixion and murder of someone innocent is absolutely against the will of God. But in another sense it was according to God's sure plan and his predetermined will that the crucifixion would take place in this way. And so here's something that theologians will tie themselves in knots over, is how can, in one sense, something wicked be God's will for it to occur? God willed it, and yet, in other places, it's against the will of God to do evil. Is it not against the will of God to do evil? So how can God will that evil was to take place? In this case, the killing of his innocent son according to his own plan and his own foreknowledge. And, he, and we, could, we could ask the same question. This is the most important question to ask of, of this text, but you could just take a step back and say, I've experienced evil in my life. I've experienced sin against me. I've experienced wrong. Could it be that that was part of God's plan? That God willed that to occur? That, that cancer that my loved one is suffering from, is something that God has willed to take place? I think it's a striking question. And it's the kind of question that, as Christians, we are forced to wrestle with, because God, who is sovereign, is sovereign not just over the major themes of Scripture, but he's sovereign over all the details of those themes. So can God permit and will for wickedness to occur, and that be according to his plan, for good to proceed from it. That's actually Peter's point. that This Jesus who was crucified according to God's plan, whom, by the way, these people put to death, God raised him, loosing from him the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Jesus, crucified sinfully and wickedly by the Romans, by the will of the Jews, was resurrected as the final and full attestation of his glory and divinity. That was all according to God's plan. Now, before I go to an example in the Old Testament where I think this is easily resolved, I just want us to sit for just a moment and say, again, the text has no contradiction between God's sovereign will and individual human responsibility for wickedness that happened. Notice how he says, God, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And by the way, to his audience, and you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So he's not removing human agency from this equation, but he's simply saying the human agency takes place inside of God's universe and God's sovereignty. Now, in the Bible reading plan, we just finished uh, reading through the book of Genesis, and Genesis finishes the last 20 chapters or so of Genesis, lead us into the story of Israel, and ultimately to one of Israel's sons, Joseph who is a great example of just how wickedness can happen according to God's plan. So let's turn to Genesis for just a moment. I just want to point to the overall story, but two particular notes in the story, where we see Joseph articulating something similar to what Peter here is articulating. And not only is this a great example of the sovereignty and human responsibility dynamic in Scripture, but also, for many of you, you just finished reading this only a couple days ago, so uh, hopefully it's, it's fresh in your, your minds. So what happens in the story of Joseph, this is, this is big picture, and if you want to find this in, in uh, the text, it's going to be in Genesis 45, is the first place we'll look. Um, Joseph is favored by his father, Also favored by God, he's been given these visions and dreams about some future uh, rulership that he will have even over his own family. He's very unpopular with his brothers as a result of all this favor. And so his brothers sell him into slavery. It's quite a sibling situation they have going on there. Sell him into slavery. He's in slavery. And being sold in slavery, he becomes the slave of first a man named Potiphar. Potiphar is a powerful man. Eventually, Joseph, through the favor of God works his way to be the second-in-command in in Potiphar's household. And then Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of trying to sleep with her. And so he's sent uh, back to prison by Potiphar's will, and he is in prison for a long period of time. Uh, He meets a couple of uh, other folks in that prison. He prophesies for them about their future, and they make a promise that they won't forget him when they get out of prison. And so they get out of prison, and they do forget him for a long time. And then Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, has these dreams that he has difficulty resolving. And in, his difficult, and in that tension, one of, the, one of the assistants to Pharaoh, the one who was in prison with Joseph, goes to uh, Pharaoh and says, I have a man, I know a man who can interpret your dreams. Pharaoh gets Joseph out of prison. Joseph tell, uh, tells Pharaoh the interpretation of his dreams. And then Pharaoh puts Joseph second in command in all of Egypt. And it's in that position that Joseph finishes out his life. He finishes second in command in the entire kingdom of Egypt. And along that way, when he's serving as second in command, his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, meet him, but they don't recognize him. And when they do recognize him, they're, they're in this amazing tension because they recognize that what they did to him was sinful in selling him into slavery. Now, Joseph tests his brothers in a number of different ways. Uh, but the the resolution to that text uh, is in chapter 45. I'll start in verse 1, but we're just going to pick around a little bit. Chapter 45, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now, as he's explaining what's happening, I just want to uh, skip down to verse 7. His brothers are scared of him. Verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. So here's Joseph speaking to his brothers, the brothers who sold him into slavery, and he says, "Yeah, you might have sold me into slavery, but God was the one who sent me to Egypt. It's quite a striking statement. And his brothers forget this message because by the time you get to Genesis 50 and, jo- and uh, Jacob dies, his brothers are once again scared of him, and this is a, a more famous uh, text uh, account of this, of Joseph understanding the providence of God in his life. And this is in chapter 50, verse 20. His brothers again come to him saying, don't do evil against us, forgive us for the wickedness we have done against you. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about the me- that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is in no way saying that his brothers are innocent of the sins which they have committed against Joseph. Joseph's brothers know that. Joseph knows that. They're culpable for their sins. And yet, in this grand scheme narrative, Joseph is saying, but it was God's plan the whole time that I be sent to Egypt by his will and for his purpose to accomplish this other end, that he would save the people of Israel from the famine. Now, the reason I use that Old Testament expectation is because all the way back in Genesis, you have God's providence on display and people who are, let's say, in the throes of suffering great evil against them, being able to turn around and say, and God sovereignly ordained this to occur in this way for his purposes. And that's similar to what Peter's doing. Peter's living in real time, shortly after the crucifixion and the resurrection, and he's able to say to the other Jews who are around him, God planned this. This was foreknown to him. This was according to his will that Jesus was crucified. In in no way does that get them off the hook for the crucifixion because he's going to say that they're guilty and uh, we'll, we'll see that next week. But the point here is that God's foreknowledge and God's plan is an inevitable and inescapable reality in our lives. And just as God could will that the most wicked thing in all of history to occur, the killing of his innocent son, so too it is possible for God to will evil to befall you in your own life for his glory and for your good. And you might suffer for an entire lifetime not knowing exactly why or what God is doing in that evil. You might not know exactly why it has befallen you or why you must suffer in this way. But the people of God historically have known that God, according to his character, is a good God, a loving God, and therefore it is safe to entrust ourselves to his care, even if we don't know the ins or the outs of exactly what he's doing as he's caring for us. That, If you want a category in the Old Testament, the Lamentation Psalms wrestle with the reality of God's sovereignty over all the world, his justice in all the world, and the fact that his people can suffer injustice in the midst of that. So they cry out to God and they plead with God and they ask him to redeem them and sometimes God answers, and sometimes they don't have an answer by the time you get to the end of the psalm. The, the point that I'm saying uh, is, is pretty simple here for, for us today. We can both believe in the sovereignty of God and truly wrestle with how it's being worked out in our lives. And we ought to wrestle with how it's being worked out. The sovereignty of God, his, his de- definite plan for all of history, does not make us into determinists or fatalists, where we say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what you do. It simply matters that we just kind of go about our business. You know, and this sin that I struggle with, it's okay. God planned that in my life too, so I can just continue to give over into sin. That's not at all what that doctrine does. What the doctrine says is God is powerful over all things, so you can cry out to him and help, and that you have a genuine responsibility to obey his word and live according to his will. Uh, theologians would call this, by the way, the secret will of God and the declared will of God. His declared will is what he binds us to morally, and his secret will is what he works out in his own counsel and wisdom. And we see both of those at play here. According to God's declared will, the killing of an innocent person is wrong. And according to his secret will, it was what was required for Christ to be the atoning sacrifice for all the earth. And then that takes us to Acts 2, verse 24. where Peter continues now talking about God's definite plan. And his plan was not just that Jesus would be crucified, but also that Christ would be resurrected. Both are in God's plan. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was always not just to die, but to resurrect. Or as maybe I would say to us today, it is not just enough to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, As glorious as that is, him taking upon the sins of the world on himself. It's also important for us to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, his conquering of sin, his conquering of death itself. And as Protestants, we love the crucifixion. Very good theology. We cannot uh, dispatch that. But we must also have the resurrection as a central part of what it means to be crucified. Because for him to have been crucified is not all that good news until he's resurrected in which case the crucifixion becomes more meaningful and the resurrection becomes meaningful. It's all loaded with meaning because it's all tied, tied together. So he was crucified according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. He's now been resurrected according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. And by the way, uh, in case the Joel reference wasn't enough, Peter's going to show that in, uh, in David, David's writings, this is anticipated in Psalm 16. And here David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And I'm going to read what Peter says here. Verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter's point here is pretty simple. David says, probably about himself or maybe about his offspring, we'll get there. He says, verse 27, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And then his exposition of that is, and by the way, just so we're all on the same page, David's dead and we know where he's buried. But what Peter's going to show is that Jesus, who was resurrected, is no longer dead and no one can find the tomb in which he was buried. He, You go to the tomb, it's empty. It's where Luke concludes his gospel. The tomb is empty. He is not here. But David is still in his tomb. He has seen corruption. And so David is not talking about himself. Actually, David is talking about Christ. Verse 30, "...being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ." that he, this is now Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So here's Peter's point in summary. David wrote a long time ago in Psalm 16 that he would not see corruption, and that's how it was commonly interpreted that David's flesh would not see corruption and the Holy One would not be abandoned. But by the time you get to the New Testament, Peter's saying that's not a legitimate interpretation because David is still dead. And his tomb is still with us. So who was David talking about? Well, David is talking about in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's this prediction from God, this promise that he makes to David, that the throne will not depart from David's household. That one of David's descendants would sit on this everlasting kingdom and he would be favored by, by God. And here Peter is saying, and by the way, David being a prophet and knowing that God had made him this promise, is here talking about that descendant who would sit on the throne, and here, here he's making the radical claim. And by the way, that descendant is Christ, the one who was not abandoned to Hades, the one whose flesh did not see corruption, the one who was risen and ascended, and therefore was vindicated to be the descendant of David, who was the Messiah. That's quite a striking claim, and here we're getting to the, the kind of peak of the sermon where he's going to cause a big stir, Because the point, again, is not that God just offers salvation in general, but that God has offered salvation through Christ in particular. And so it's not enough to believe that God is benevolently saving people from sin in general. We must believe that God is saving people through Christ and through the work of Christ. Most notably, his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. This Jesus is the one who is the descendant of David, the one who now sits on the throne of David. And this is all confirmed by the fact that the tomb of Jesus is empty while the tomb of David is not empty. And he's saying that to a bunch of people who could go and check those facts if they wanted to. They could travel around and find David's tomb and find David's bones. And they could go also to the tomb of Jesus where he was buried, and they could go to try to find the Jesus' bones. But no, notably, they don't do that. They're not disputing any of this. They're... they're uh, in some sense perplexed, and we'll get there again in the following week. But the point is, this d- discourse by Peter is persuasive to them, that this is a true understanding of Psalm 16. So, at least at this point, we need to just pull over again and say, what is the relevance to us? What is this, why is this meaningful? Why does it matter that we talk about Jesus resurrected 2,000 years ago? Well, the point is that there's this line in Psalm 16, we don't have to turn there because it's, it's printed here, but you could cross-reference to Psalm 16. This is a good quotation from it. Verse 27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And what David's doing there is a little play, and he's basically saying his soul will not be abandoned to Hades to, to death and to decay forever. Why? because the Holy One of God would not see corruption. Okay, what does that have to do with you? If you are Christ, if you are his, if you are hidden in Christ, your, your soul will not be abandoned to Hades either because God did not let his Holy One see corruption. What David hoped for in the future, that the Messiah would not be left to corruption, we know from a past looking back, and we can say that our bodies, our, our dying bodies in this world, this world which is fading away, we will most likely all die. Uh, unless the Lord comes back before that time, we, we will all pass away. We will all die. So, so what hope do we have? We have the same hope David had, that we will not be abandoned to death because Christ was not abandoned to corruption. Or stated another way, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection of which we also will all partake one day. It's not not just that Christ's resurrection happened in the past, but Christ's resurrection happening in the past is a confirmation that there will be a bodily resurrection in the future for all, for the just to eternal glory and life, and for the unjust to eternal damnation and punishment. This is the hope that we all have, that in the last day, God will judge the world and find his people innocent on the basis of Christ's finished work on their behalf. So... Christ was not abandoned in Hades. He did not see corruption. And so we can have confidence that when we approach death's door, we will also not be abandoned by our Lord if we are hidden in Christ. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism uh, means when it says, what is our, it asks the question, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we have been purchased by the precious blood of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. It's not how many disciples we have made. It's not how many times we've read through the Bible. It's not how many times we attended Sunday worship. None of that is our hope in life and in death. In life and in death, our hope is that we are hidden in Christ and his precious blood is ours. It counts for us. And therefore, uh, Peter continues his, his text. What should we do with this? Therefore, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So how are the hearers at Pentecost to interpret the speaking in tongues and the strange happenings in their midst? It's not drunkenness, like what they accuse them of in verse 13. But rather, it is that the Holy Spirit is now being poured out, according to what Joel said. And it's not being poured out just randomly. But remember, Christ ascended. That's how the book of Acts starts out. And he now reigns. And from his throne, he sends his Holy Spirit to his people so that they have power and equipping and vitality for the life of ministry, for their lives as believers. He has not left his people, but he has continued to abide with them by means of his Spirit. And so it's important for us to recognize that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we do not talk about the Holy Spirit as a person of the Trinity who we get to enjoy today and the Father and the Son are away from us, far away. And the Holy Spirit is the one we enjoy in this era. The Holy Spirit points to and reveals and shows us Christ and God. The Holy Spirit reveals to us Christ's identity. It reveals to us, he reveals to us our sinfulness, our need for salvation, and reveals to us the means by which that salvation can occur. The Holy Spirit does not act out of accord with the Father and the Son but in total alignment with the salvation plan of God. And it's important for us to understand that because there, sometimes today there's this Holy Spirit frenzy that believes in a Holy Spirit totally devoid from any kind of worship of Christ or a Holy Spirit totally devoid of any kind of tri-unity of the, of the Godhead. But we believe in the Holy Spirit, absolutely. The Holy Spirit that Scripture talks about, the one who points to Christ and points to the Father and makes him plain and understandable to the people of God. So what is a true work of the Holy Spirit? It's not necessarily ecstatic utterances. It's not necessarily someone feeling a certain way. It's not necessarily someone uh, having no more feeling of guilt or shame. All of those could possibly happen in correspondence with the Holy Spirit's work. But the unvarnished work of the Holy Spirit, the way we know it's truly the Holy Spirit at work, is that it turns sinners to Christ. The Holy Spirit works by convicting of sin and turning us to our savior. Anything else could coincide with that. We could feel happy when he does that sort of thing. But a feeling of happiness, devoid from a turning in repentance to Christ, is not, absolutely not, the work of the Holy Spirit. It could be the work of many other things. You could play music and feel happy about yourself. You could play music very loud with a bunch of people and say the Holy Spirit is now at work. But the true work of the Holy Spirit is repentance and faith and dependence upon Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit here because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ whom he sends into the world to point to his finished work. So Peter's talking about here in verse 33. Christ in his exalted state has sent the Spirit to point and continue to point to his work. He has poured out his Spirit that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. And so very plainly for us today, The Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father work together to bring about salvation. The Father has planned it, has sent the Son into the world. The Son has obeyed and been sent into the world, taken on flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and was resurrected and vindicated for his efforts, for his work. And the Holy Spirit is now sent by the Father and by the Son into the world to convict of sin, to turn us in faith and repentance to Christ, And so we can rightly say that we still continue to experience the working of Pentecost, the outworking of Pentecost today, the repentance of sins, the confession to Christ, believing upon him. And for any of you who are Christians, if you know what it is to confess your sins before the Lord and depend upon Christ, you have tasted of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He anoints us for such a task to see our sins and see our need for a Savior. And so it is with that... uh, theological framing that we should join together now in prayer. Our Father, you are the true God in heaven. And we are pleased to know you as Father, Son, and Spirit, working perfectly together to bring about salvation for your people. Lord, we know that we fall so short of keeping this front and center in our lives. We fall short of it because of worries and anxieties and the cares of this world. Lord, I pray that worship now and worship in the coming weeks would act as a a guidepost for us to return us back to your truth, to your word, which reminds us of our ultimate needs, our ultimate status, our ultimate condition. And Lord, reminds us of the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And for those of us who are believers, that we are blood-bought and redeemed saints of that Savior. And we should continue to abide in you. We pray for your grace as we go into the week, as we continue now in worship, that you would help us to live into that identity as blood-bought saints of the Son. We pray this together in your name. Amen.